0: Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of a recent episode exploring the history of investors holding businesses accountable and the dawn of the ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, movement. From NPR and
1: WBUR Boston, I'm Jane Clayson, and this is On Point. A week we will never forget. The U.S. has more confirmed cases of coronavirus than anywhere else in the world, more than Italy, more than China. President Trump remains optimistic.
2: And the people that actually die, that percentage is is a much lower percentage than I ever thought. That's one of the reasons I say, look, we're going to beat this and we're going to get back
1: to work. But on the front lines of this crisis, a very different message. Mary Turner is an ICU nurse in Minnesota. She says supplies are short as they brace for what's coming.
3: We see a human being and we are honor bound and we are called to take care of you. And all we're asking is that we can be safe doing what we are called to do. And that's to take care of the people.
1: The economy is in crisis, too. 3.3 million Americans applied for unemployment benefits in one week. Shalacey Hall lost her job as a waitress in New Orleans.
3: I'm like, I worked all these years and I worked so hard. to so just to get to where I'm at, for now, I have to drive back down to unemployment. And I'm looking at the unemployment benefits and I'm looking at my overhead and looking at the unemployment benefits. is actually was, to the part where
0: I really wanted to cry about it.
1: Joining me today from Washington, Paula Reed, White House correspondent for CBS News. Paula, how nice to have you. Thank you for taking the time. No, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And Jonathan Cohn, he's senior national correspondent at HuffPost, covering health care, social welfare and politics. He's in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Jonathan it's nice to have you. Thank you.
4: Thank you for having me on the show.
1: Well, now we have more confirmed cases of coronavirus in the United States than any other country in the world, surpassing Italy and China, where this pandemic began. Paula Reed, I'll start with you. The data seems to indicate that this crisis is ramping up exponentially. What's the latest on your mind today?
5: Absolutely. Well, on my mind is the fact that this is absolutely the worst week of the Trump administration so far. You see 3.3 million Americans filing for unemployment. That is a historic uh, record. At the same time, the U.S. is now number one in the world, surpassing Italy and China for the highest number of confirmed Coronavirus cases. And at the same time, you have the president still signaling that he may want to open some parts of the country or encourage local leaders to open some parts of this country uh, in as soon as two weeks.
1: So, Jonathan, uh, the World Health Organization says the U.S. is emerging as the epicenter now of this global pandemic. Just a week ago, there were 8,000 confirmed cases in the U.S. Now there are more than 80,000. More than 1,100 people have died. That number is on the rise. I mean, the headlines are everywhere. Atlanta, is now issuing a stay-at-home order. Uh, Cities everywhere are trying to deal with this. Uh, the, The goal has been to flatten the curve throughout this whole thing. Where are we now on that curve?
4: Well, the curve is still going up. Um, You know, we are in the early stages of this. We are seeing hospitals getting inundated. And it is not, you know, we started with Seattle and we started with New York. Um, You mentioned I'm based in Ann Arbor. I can tell you that the hospitals in and around Detroit are just getting slammed right now. Um, They are very worried about hitting capacity, what they do when they run out of ICU beds, what they do when there aren't enough ventilators, when there's not enough staff to take care of everybody, so we are still on the upswing. This is going to get worse. Um, there are, you know, tentative signs. I think hopeful signs that so, flattening the curve, social distancing, that by, you know, really reducing our activity, nearly shutting the country down, it does make a difference. We think. Um, it's early, uh, you know, the data, because we've only been doing this for a little while and there's this two week lag because people can get the infection and show no symptoms for up to two weeks. Um, I, so the, the flattening the curve, hopefully we're making progress, Mm -hmm. but you know, it's also, we're in a situation where parts of the country are taking this very seriously and have issued these orders. The parts like the state of Florida haven't, they still haven't, uh, taken that kind of order. So, I mean, It's really hard to say where we're going to go from here.
1: Jonathan, you mentioned hospitals are inundated. So much talk about supplies and ventilators. Uh, The gap between the production and the delivery of supplies and the need out there on the front lines is on the minds of many, many people. Um, Here's New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. He had a scathing assessment of the situation this week. Here he is during a briefing on Tuesday where he said the federal government needs to step in more. Here he is.
6: FEMA is sending us 400 ventilators, Those are on the news this morning. We are sending 400 ventilators to New York. 400 ventilators? I need 30,000 ventilators. You want a pat on the back for sending 400 ventilators? What are we going to do for 400, with 400 ventilators when we need 30,000 ventilators? You're missing the magnitude of the problem, and the problem is defined by the magnitude. And here was President
1: Trump last night on Fox News with uh, Sean Hannity responding to Governor Cuomo's request for ventilators.
2: I don't believe you need 40,000 or 30,000 ventilators. You know, you go into major hospitals sometimes, they'll have two ventilators, and now all of a sudden they're saying, can we order 30,000 ventilators? So look, It's a very bad situation. We haven't seen anything like it. But the end result is we got to get back to work. And I think we can start by opening up certain parts of the country, you know.
1: Paula Reid, we'll talk about that part of it, opening up parts of the country. But to the supply issue and the ventilators and the hospital needs, um, many governors have wanted the president to take charge of making sure that these medical supplies are distributed properly. Is that happening?
5: No, it does not appear to be happening. And the administration so far has not been able to give us any specific numbers about how many ventilators are in the national stockpile, how many are being made, who is making them, and how long that will take. I specifically asked the vice president on Wednesday those exact questions. He said he did not dispute my number. That was There was about 16,000 ventilators in the national stockpile. That's actually based on reporting from the Center for Public Integrity. And no one can seem to answer whether that includes the 4,000 that were sent. uh, Kuma misspoke there are 4,000 that were sent uh, to New York City. The government really does not have a lot of answers about how they're going to meet this need. And right now, no one in the White House can tell me it's not true that people will die because there are not enough ventilators. And there does not appear to be a
1: concrete plan to the ventilators that will be needed uh, to keep people safe and alive. So, Jonathan Cohen, the president originally urged states to sort of fend for themselves, if you will, find what they could on the open market. And governors this week are reporting that they're not only competing against each other for supplies, they're competing against foreign countries <laughs> for supplies, right? What's the messaging and what's actually happening on the ground?
4: Yeah, I mean, it's really quite shocking. Um, You know, as Paula said, there's a number of questions we would want answered. If you you imagine a sort of what a federal response to a crisis like this should look like, as soon as it became apparent that we might run out of ventilators, you know, you would do an assessment. What is the inventory in the United States? What might the need be? What is the current capability of uh, industry to produce more? What does then the federal government need to do? to increase that production and then make sure the ventilators go to the places that need them when they need them. Because after all, you know, the timing may be different. New York may need them this week. Um, uh, Chicago might need them two weeks from now. There is very little evidence that that has been happening, um, partly, I think, because they were slow to react to this. And there was a message from the top that this was not that serious, it was going to be fine. It was only, you know, about two weeks ago that the president declared uh, a national emergency with the Stafford Act. Um, Doing that kind of automatically set in motion a reaction that is starting finally, I think, to take place. And FEMA is taking charge and is finally starting to do these sorts of things. But as Paula says, they still can't give concrete answers to that. And so you have this crazy situation. You know, Governor Pritzker uh, in Illinois says, you know, I'm on the phone with a ventilator manufacturer, and they're saying, well, you better order more because, you know, you're competing against other, other other, other, customers abroad, maybe here in the United States. You know, this is not how it's supposed to run. The federal government should be in charge, should be maximizing the production and saying, OK, who needs them when? Let's get them to that mm-hmm. place now.
1: Paula Reid, you mentioned it, and the president has said it over and over again, that he wants to get Americans back to work. Got to get back to work, he says. Earlier this week, he said he wanted the United States, quote, raring to go in two and a half weeks on Easter with, quote, packed churches all over our country. He tweeted in all caps, we cannot let the cure be worse than the problem itself. Um, talk about this and sort of the, the push and the pull between the president and his optimism and his hope to get back to normal and public health officials who are saying, whoa, hold on, wait.
5: Well, I've talked to sources in the West Wing, and let me tell you, this Easter deadline it came out of nowhere. And this image of packed churches in just two weeks, that is the opposite of what all of the White House officials have been asking to keep Americans safe and to contain this outbreak. Uh, We've asked the president, was there a medical basis? Was there an economic basis for this timeline? He has not been able uh, to answer that question. None of his medical experts have actually been willing uh, to endorse this plan. In fact, uh, Dr. Deborah Burke, she was asked about that same day, do you endorse this? She would not. She said, we need more data before we can know what parts of the country. They also emphasize, you're not going to be able to just open up the whole country. A, the president doesn't have the power to do that. B, This is uh, impacting folks in in different ways across the country. Part of that uh, is because of the spread. Part of that is because of testing capabilities. It's not equal uh, across the country. But this gets to a larger tension here inside the White House, which is the president's belief that what people need in this very dark time is hope, whereas what people really seem to want are hard facts. And last night, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who many Americans have really come to trust and like he said that he believes the president's Easter timeline, it, it was just aspirational. It was indeed just meant to give people hope. And he said that the president is actually listening to his medical experts. And Dr. Fauci believes that he he will take their advice in terms of actually following that aggressive timeline or not. But I have to note on Dr. Anthony Fauci, he was absent Monday. I'm um, from the. briefing that about a dozen of these briefings, mm-hmm. I cannot tell you how many texts, DMs, Facebook messages from my sister-in-law, my mom's best friend, old neighbors. People were so concerned that he was not there. And that really tells you something. That's who folks are looking to for the answers. And right now, he says the Easter timeline, it's just aspirational.
1: Let me play a clip from Dr. Fauci. Uh, Here he is uh, on Wednesday on CNN talking about that timeline for getting back.
2: You've got to be realistic. And you've got to understand that you don't make the timeline The virus makes the timeline. Mm. So you've got to respond in what you see happen. And if you keep seeing this acceleration, it doesn't matter what you say one week, two weeks, three weeks, you've got to go with what the situation on the ground is.
1: We are talking about coronavirus in the United States, the skyrocketing number of cases, state and federal management of the pandemic and the economic impact that nearly every American is feeling right now. A great uh, panel today, Paula Reed, CBS News, White House correspondent Jonathan Cohn uh, from HuffPo. I'm Jane Clayson. This is On Point. Much more after this break. We'll be right back.
0: Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash That's Indeed.com slash Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes.
6: ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar, Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balanced scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody had thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures, There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short-term, mid-term, long-term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and... Thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment.
0: Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.
1: This is On Point. I'm Jane Clayson. The World Health Organization now says the United States is the epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic. Here's uh, some sound. CBS News reporter Mola Lange talked to an emergency room nurse in Michigan about the difficulty she is facing treating her patients. I didn't choose nursing or the healthcare care field to not help people. And that's exactly what the choices are that they're giving us. They're giving us no choice but to help Only the people that they think that can survive. A lot of people impacted. We want to turn now to New Orleans, Louisiana, which now has the highest rate of spread of the coronavirus in the world. Hospitals there are expected to reach capacity very soon. And more than 100,000 people applied for unemployment just last week. Joining me from New Orleans is reporter Betsy Shepard from WWNO. Betsy, welcome to On Point. Thank you for taking the time.
7: Hello, Jane. Thanks for having me.
1: So you have a rapidly escalating situation there. What are the numbers? How bad is it in New Orleans?
7: The situation in Louisiana is dire, particularly in New Orleans. Um, as you mentioned, the state has the fastest growing rate of new cases in the world. And in addition to that, Orleans Parish, which is the county in which New Orleans is located, it has the highest per capita death rate of COVID-19 in America. It's more than triple the death rate per capita in New York City. Mm. Mm.
1: And uh, well, I heard a top official in New Orleans yesterday say that this will be the disaster that defines a generation. It is dire, he said. Tell us what the situation is at your hospitals right now.
7: It, the spread of the virus is overwhelming Louisiana's hospital network. Louisiana was slated to run out of hospital beds by the end of March, first week of April. Um, And now we're taking extreme measures to increase our medical capacity. Earlier this week, Louisiana was declared a major disaster area and is finally getting some federal assistance in order to help with that surge effort. Before this, the state started housing COVID-19 patients in trailers and cabins in state parks and bayous. So we have about 300 patients in nature reserves. Mm. Right now, we are setting up 1,100 hospital beds in New Orleans's main convention center. We're also turning unoccupied hotels into makeshift hospitals. And another thing the state is doing to meet the need is it's fast-tracking licenses for new doctors and nurses to treat the surge of patients, and it's asking retirees to come out of their retirement in order to volunteer as health workers.
1: You know, it's interesting because uh, it sounds like the iconic M- Mardi Gras celebration was partly to Blame for this swift spread, right?
7: Yeah, state and city ex- public health experts are saying that Mardi Gras was the perfect storm that created these high rates in causing, you know, just this meteoric rise um, and spread of the virus. And Mardi Gras is. New Orleans culture on steroids. And you also have this interchange of tourists from around the world. But we got to remember that New Orleans is a compact city with a hyper social culture. It's built around events like parades and concerts, festivals, crawfish boils. Social intimacy is a way of life here. And it's not surprising for those reasons that New Orleans has become an incubator for the virus. Social distancing is an alien concept, especially for residents that you know, especially for Katrina survivors who endured trauma by, you know, through social connection and the communal spirit of the city. But right. it's, it's important to remember that those characteristics play a big part, but we can't overlook the fact that socioeconomics play a big factor in the infection rate here.
1: Meaning the high rate of poverty.
7: The high rate of poverty New Orleans has uh, one of the higher poverty rates in the country twenty before the pandemic twenty four percent of New Orleans residents were living below the poverty line and we know that poverty uh, would just disp- you know people that are impoverished are disproportionately affected by disease um, they people that are in communal housing, dense public housing, people that are homeless, people that have to work, just are uh, have a higher rate of exposure.
1: Let me play a clip from some interviews that you did. Stephanie is a 54-year-old former municipal worker. She has an autoimmune disease that puts her at higher risk of dying from COVID-19. She had three family members die this week from the virus.
3: It's taking a lot of people lives. It's like a fast eating cancer. And I'm talking about rapid. I mean, every single day, I'm having someone calling me, telling me that somebody that I know, a family, a friend, passed away. And you're just going to have to remember them the way they were when they was living, because you won't be able to get a chance to see them at a funeral.
1: Mm. Here's another single mom, Jasmine Greenleaf, from New Orleans. She lost her job as an oyster shucker at a restaurant. Speaking to our guest, Betsy Shepard.
3: And then you're okay. Sorry. No, it's okay. You've got important matters to take care of over there. Yeah. I mean, I guess having my son, I feel like I kind of quarantine myself a little more than most people, probably because I'm like his sole provider. So if anything happens to me, then like, It's done, you know, like, I don't know, that's slightly terrifying to me. Like, uh, that whole thing has has changed my world.
1: Some real um, heartfelt suffering uh, going on there, Betsy. I know unemployment claims are up. You've been talking to people to get a sense of how they're coping. What are they telling you in New Orleans?
7: Yeah, I mean, in addition to this public health crisis we're getting a double whammy effect here because tourism is the economic engine of New Orleans. It brings in tens of billions of dollars to the city, and it's one of the main sources of revenue for city government. It employs more than a quarter of the workforce here, and those local businesses have shuttered overnight, leaving tens of thousands of workers without jobs. The state right now is processing about 10,000 unemployment claims. I'm I'm sorry, they're not processing. They are receiving 10,000 unemployment claims a day. As a point of comparison, Mm. They, in early March, they received 1,500 unemployment claims in one week. So the numbers are astronomical. And when we think about the role that poverty plays in um, in the spread of this disease, those poverty rates are going to be astronomical at the rate that the economy is shutting down here.
1: Betsy, I know you have to run. Uh, you live in the French Quarter. Uh, give us a sense of what it's been like there for you.
7: Yeah, being that I live in the urban core, I think I'm getting a, a very dramatic picture of this economic shutdown. Um, in, in the first quarter, it's mostly restaurants, bars that have all been shuttered and they're covered in plywood. It looks like a total ghost town. We're used to seeing that image during natural disasters, but they're all boarded up to prevent looting. And um, there's, you know, the city has been overtaken by rats, um, and a lot of the homeless population is are the the only um, people that are left in the quarter because they're that you know that's where they live and that's where they're used to getting money from tourists and so they are also a vulnerable population that are. Are at risk. We um, we know that at least one homeless person has tested positive, and so the city recently started taking action to put some of those homeless people in local hotels.
1: Betsy Shepard uh, report- reporting from member station WWNO in New Orleans on this unfolding crisis. There, uh, Betsy, stay safe, and thanks for your work.
7: Thank you so much.
1: Go back to our uh, panel, Paula Reed, CBS News White House correspondent, and Jonathan Cohn uh, from HuffPost. Uh, Paula, you heard the unemployment numbers there in Louisiana. Let's broaden that out. Uh, Another grim statistic nationwide, 3.3 million Americans filed for unemployment last week. Is it possible those jobless numbers could go even higher?
5: It is. It is certainly possible. I mean, those numbers were expected by the White House, but it was fascinating to see the response. The president historically has been very quick to respond to those numbers because they're typically low. It's something he's very proud of. A strong economy was what he was banking on to propel him uh, to reelection. But yesterday we did not hear from him commenting on that historic surge in unemployment numbers until his task force briefing. He didn't mention it in his open remarks. It was about 15 minutes in when he was asked. And his first comment was about who's to blame. And he said, well, nobody's to blame. Certainly not anyone in this country, that was a pretty surprising response. And earlier in the day, as Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, he, he was asked about these numbers, and he tried to downplay them. He said that he did not believe uh, they, they were truly relevant, and he tried to pivot to the large stimulus deal that he had negotiated, which expands unemployment benefits and does send uh, checks to some people who have been impacted by this. But the White House's response has been uh, surprising uh, to these numbers.
1: So the the economy certainly is on the president's mind. I wanted to play this clip. Paula Reed, you asked the president if he had a political motivation for setting an Easter deadline to reopen businesses and schools, and here's the confrontation that ensued at Wednesday's briefing.
5: Lawmakers and economists on both sides of the aisle have said that reopening the country by Easter is not a good idea. What is that plan
1: based on? Just
2: so you understand. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. I think there are certain people that would like it not to open so quickly. I think there are certain people that would like it to do financially poorly because they think that would be very good as far as defeating me at the polls. And I don't know if that's so, but I do think it's so that a lot of that there are people in your profession that would like that to happen.
1: So it is a theme that continues to come back at these briefings, Paula Reed. Uh, the economy and, uh, and re-election. Yes.
5: And let, let's take you to the two aspects of that, of that um, exchange the substance of the question. I mean, as I said, the president was banking on a strong economy to propel him to re-election that has pretty much evaporated. And he had tweeted shortly before that briefing uh, suggesting that the nation being shut down could hurt his his election success and then suggested conspiracy theories that it was the media who wanted to keep the country shut down to hurt his chances. When I asked him is, do you see a, con- a connection here? Are you trying to reopen the country out of your political interests? Because so far, he hadn't been able to give any medical or economic justification for it. And what he did is he pivoted back uh, to to a technique that he's used throughout the Clinton email investigation, throughout Mueller, throughout impeachment, which is to attack the press. We've seen him do it with Peter Alexander of NBC. Caitlin Collins was sitting right next to me. Uh, I pointed and called us fake news. But I can tell you, uh, sometimes this works to the president trying to deflect blame and and argue that people are being unfair or something, whatever it is, is the media's fault. That's not happening here. I can tell you, I, I get the sense of feedback I'm getting from the country. People know this is about life and death. I don't get a sense there's a really strong appetite in this country right now for these kind of responses to questions of substance, especially when you're reading the president's words back, you know, asking for clarification.
1: Jonathan Cohn, in a letter to the nation's governors, the president has said that he's got a plan to essentially categorize counties across this country as high or medium or low risk as a way to encourage leaders to let business owners open their doors again. Does that sound like a good idea, especially in places where the virus really has has not had a significant impact?
4: Yeah, so certainly not in the short term. Um, public health experts I know sort of saw that and and reacted as they have to many pronouncements that the president has made about the state of the uh, outbreak, the pandemic, where it's going, as in what is he possibly thinking. Um, there will come a point, I think, when we will have to talk about what kind of tradeoffs we want to make, how we get back to a normally functioning society Maybe at that point, you know, we get to a point where we treat different parts of the country in different ways. But there are so many prerequisites for that. You know, the most important of which is we really have to have a full testing system in place. So we even know where, they, where things are bad and where they aren't. Um, we have to see how that I mean, This problem is still on the upswing and even where it's, you know, in places that are hard hit. We are we, we don't yet have a sense of how bad it's going to get in New York. We don't know what it's going to look like in Detroit in two weeks. Um, so we are way, way early for making that kind of uh, discussion. And, and you hear from the president at the podium in the exchanges like the ones you've just played. He is just pushing to get this over with, get the country back to work, which just is simply uh, uh, not what public health experts are, are saying. And they all hear this, and I get the messages. I'm sure Paula gets the messages. Everyone I know who covers healthcare gets the messages from experts saying, "What on earth is he saying?" Right, because Can Paula I just Reed- jump in there Well, really I was in-
1: yes, please. Well, what's so interesting
5: is the president keeps saying, "I want to get the current economy." He can't do that unilaterally. Right. He needs buy in from the states, from local leaders who control those economies, even if he wants to to do this piecemeal, uh, you know, as you guys just said, once we have a better sense, as his health experts say, once you have. He's going to need these folks. And right now he doesn't have their buy in, but he's also engaging on a lot of these these disputes, the kind of personal attacks uh, that we've seen for years. For example, yesterday uh, on, a, on a call with governors, Washington Governor Jay Inslee, a state that's been hit especially hard. They had this contentious exchange where the president said uh, that the federal government would just be a backup for them. And Inslee said, look, we don't need a, a backup. Uh, we need we need a Tom Brady. And then the president later uh, that night, last night, he was criticizing Michigan's governor, Gretchen Whitmer, referring to her as, quote, the woman governor and accusing her of not stepping up. So the, these personal disputes that he is famous for engaging in at this moment, it's unclear if he truly realizes the extent to which he is going to need allies when he wants to take this bold move of opening up portions of the country, because it's going to be hard to convince these folks, especially as the body count rises.
1: Hmm. Jonathan Cohn, it seems pretty clear that the number of coronavirus cases are not only increasing, but accelerating in places that had no cases or very few cases even last week. And now they're in the thousands. So I think we have a ways to go, do we not, before we sort of hit the apex, as Dr. Fauci always talks about, the top of the curve uh, in this coronavirus pandemic.
4: For sure. I mean, that's the mathematical reality of exponential growth. Um, We are, this is still spreading. Uh, This is going to keep getting worse. And, and, And that's one of the reasons that sort of shutting, you know, having different treatment for different parts of the country is so difficult to contemplate right now. I mean, okay, right now, maybe there's not a lot of cases in St. Louis, but Chicago's getting them. So how exactly do you work that? Because people from Chicago are going to go to St. Louis. Um, you know, you just, it is not a very practical strategy. And again, you know, given the 14-day delay sometimes from when people come into contact to developing symptoms, um, we don't really know where the epidemic is yet, right? I mean, there are places, there are cities that are like, well, we don't have a lot of cases yet. I promise you in most of them, there's probably community spread there already and it's just a ticking time bomb Before you start to see the cases explode and their hospitals are in the same situation as the hospitals in Detroit and New Orleans and New York and Seattle. Right.
1: And Paula Reid, under the president's plan to sort of categorize these counties, high, medium, low risk, what's to stop someone in a high risk area from traveling to a low risk area? I mean, would that create a sort of patchwork system that allows more cases to slip through the cracks and spread even further?
5: Exactly, and that's really at the heart of the problem with this argument that he wanted to see packed churches uh, on Easter in two weeks. We, he he and, and his and he tried to explain it, and he said, that, "Look, there's parts of the country, whole counties, uh, chunks of states where you don't see any coronavirus. But all you need is one person to show up at Easter service, and you could infect uh, at a service. This is an interconnected web. That's what we've seen, right? Over the past two months, uh, how quickly this thing can spread." Hmm.
1: My guests this hour are Jonathan Cohn via Skype, senior national correspondent at HuffPost, Paula Reed, White House correspondent for CBS News. We're looking at all angles of the coronavirus pandemic. Up next, we'll talk about the $2 trillion stimulus package uh, that is going to the House today. More on that uh, and other, the president's popularity numbers up, way up. Much more to come. I'm Jane Clayson. and this is On Point. We'll be right back. This is On Point. I'm Jane Clayson. We're back with our weekend review talking all things coronavirus with Paula Reed, CBS News correspondent uh, at the White House, and Jonathan Cohn, uh, senior national correspondent at HuffPost. Well, aside from the health concerns, a lot of people are suffering financially uh, right now. Here's Waffle House CEO Walt Elmer talking to Charlotte TV station WBTV about having 420 restaurants closed because of coronavirus. He wants restrictions to be lessened to allow the balance between business interests and safety.
6: And even though a lot of people think that, oh, we'll just turn the switch back on 30 days from now, a lot of companies won't come back, a lot of restaurants won't come back, hotels won't come back, jobs won't come back. And when the jobs don't come back, then there's another public health crisis.
1: And here's Edward from Lenox, Massachusetts. He's a wedding photographer. He's worried about what might happen if his clients cancel.
3: I still have all my weddings on the book. A couple people have changed their dates. I am anticipating some cancellations. As a self-employed person, do I qualify for any kind of assistance?
1: So, Paula Reed, let's talk about that. Uh, We'll answer... um, the, the caller's question, Edward's question, after we talk about this $2 trillion stimulus package that's heading to the House today, then um, supposedly signed into law by the president later. What are the key provisions of this bill, Paula?
5: Well, I do have to say, you know, when a full House closes down, it is bad. Yeah. Um, anyone who, who covers news knows they, they are open throughout everything. Answer the the caller's question. It does appear that there's a broad array of relief in this stimulus bill. I think you'd need to know more about how much money he makes. Um, most folks can get a check for about twelve hundred dollars. If you make, I believe it's under about 90, you have to check the the final number. Basically, if you make under $100,000, you may be eligible for that $1,200 check. But that's a one-time payment. I would imagine that he makes more than that uh, in a a single job. Uh, If he has a spouse, that that spouse can get it. And there's also money for children. Now, they've also expanded unemployment benefits uh, for those impacted by the coronavirus and one thing that is unique about is that it does contemplate those in this economy, uh, which is significant because traditionally those folks uh, are left out of a lot, a lot of this kind of relief. More about his specific situation, uh, this bill is much better than even what was expected in terms of folks who don't have uh, necessarily an employer, who are self-employed, who work the
1: gig economy. How do you see this $2 trillion uh, stimulus plan, Jonathan Cohn?
4: Yeah, I mean, there's sort of two ways to look at it. Um, the, the 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 you know, it's a it's a huge amount of money by the standards of what the we've seen before. You know, in terms of economic stimulus packages in history. Um, but that's because this is an un, truly unprecedented crisis. I mean, the entire United States economy has basically ground to a halt. Um, there are different pieces and you know depending on who you talk to, you'll get different opinions. Um, you know, progressives certainly were not happy to see a very large uh, multi hundred billion dollar uh, a loan package of loans and some grants to large corporations without a lot of oversight on it. On the other hand, the unemployment uh, uh, portions that Paul was just talking about are really pretty remarkable. It's not just that you sort of that they've extended them to gig workers; they've also added an extra six hundred dollar check to everyone. In addition, the loans to small business that are designed to go out very quickly and basically to every small business in America and say, look, if you keep your employees on basically the government is going to give you a loan to cover rent overhead salaries and if at the end of this you know emergency period uh, you're you've kept those people on the payroll the government will just forgive that part of the loan so really the federal government's almost assume you know and, and indirectly assuming the wages of a large number of, of the American workforce because someone has to do it now there's details to work out we'll see uh, if there's enough money in this package to provide what they're promising' They're going to have to almost certainly come back and do another package very soon. But there's a lot in here. Mm.
1: And as Paula said, depending on income, about $1,200 per American, is that right? Uh, With children under 16 qualifying for an additional $500?
4: That sounds right. And it does, it does phase out at, at a sort of income, I think, uh, of uh, $100,000 per filing. I don't remember if that's per filing family or per individual. I'll have to look it up. Yeah. But yes, there are these $1,200 checks. And again, I think this is something we could see in the next package coming back, depending You know, if the economy looks as bad as we think it's going to look. You, know, you could see another one.
1: Here is Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell on Thursday talking about the unity it took to pass this $2 trillion relief package this week.
2: From arguably the most partisan, divisive thing you could possibly do to coming together entirely, a 100 of us, to meet this challenge, I think says a lot about the United States Senate as an institution, our willingness to put aside our differences, to do something really significant for the country.
1: And here is House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. This was on her 80th birthday, we should say. Uh, she says she was happy with the final product and said the White House would pass it, uh, the House would pass it today, and then it goes on, of course, to President Trump and the White House. She also addressed the question of choosing the economy here
0: over saving lives. And markets are not going to succeed unless we take care of people and we restore their health, whether there's a cure or whether there's a behavior uh, that reduces this uh, tragedy in our country. Uh, but let us work together together. Uh, in the most bipartisan way possible uh, to to get the job done as soon as possible. It won't happen unless we respect science, science, science. And for those who say we choose prayer over science, I say science is an answer to our prayers.
1: Paula Reed, talk about the process of uh, passing this two trillion dollar relief package. It's been
5: interesting because it's really been Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury secretary, negotiating with Democrats and Republicans. So the president has not been as actively involved when he's been pressed on the details of this. He hasn't always seemed to be particularly read in at a high level. He wanted it passed. But Steve Mnuchin has been the one who's been running around uh, trying to, to make this happen, um, though there are some concerns. Well, we just talked about some of the positive parts. There are some big questions um, from folks on both sides of the aisle wondering if we really have learned our lessons, specifically from what was passed in 2008, the economic relief there. On the one side, there's a lot of questions about bailing out corporations, specifically the airlines. They're not particularly responsible with their finances. They don't have a sufficient rainy day fund. And there were questions raised about why they had to be uh, bailed out and whether taxpayers would be made whole. Now, this bill does try to, to, to lay out provisions uh, to limit uh, stock buybacks, uh, executive compensation. But the last version I saw also allows for exemptions to that. At one point, there was a $500 billion pool of money uh, corporations could request from, and there was no oversight. Steve Mnuchin was the oversight. We asked the president if he thought that was acceptable and he volunteered to be the oversight. Now that that has been rectified, but it's all part of this process, uh, the give and take on the other side with unemployment. uh, There were questions uh, by Senator Lindsey Graham and others about whether this was too much, if if they were encouraging people uh, to remain unemployed. So a lot of questions most of which, though, were sort of looking back at 2008, what went right, what went wrong. But at the end of the day, even the president said, look, the airlines, uh, the unemployed folks, uh, this was nobody's fault. Uh, This is an invisible enemy. And there was ultimately a bipartisan support for this bill. Um, We'll we'll see if it gets passed today in the House and if it makes its way here to the White House, where the president is expected to sign it.
1: Jonathan Cohn, a $2 trillion relief package passed essentially in a week. There are bound to be big issues in there. What do you see?
4: Yeah, I mean there are tons of big issues. Um, all the ones that Paul just mentioned. Um, in addition, you know, um, every piece of the of uh, every part of the relief package is built on an existing system. And so, for example, I was mentioning around these small business loans, which are so important. You know, they're going to go through the small business association, which will then lend it out through private lenders. Well, the small business association, if you talk to people, small businesses got a reputation for being slow, a lot of red tape. Can they handle this giant? Influx of money, who knows, but I think the the, the thinking was and, and this goes to not just how they designed the bill but how quickly they passed it was this is a crisis. every day of delay is dangerous every day people are losing their jobs every day businesses are going under, and the feeling was get this out the door as fast as you can it's even if you have a rickety old system that 's probably better than standing up something new. just get that money out the door. This is an unprecedented crisis. We will come back to this later if we need to, but just do it now. Make whatever cut deals, whatever cut, cut whatever deals need to get, get it through, get the money out to the American business community, get it out to the American people before we're in an even worse economic calamity than we've seen in 100 years. Mm
1: We had a lot of response uh, to this from our on point listeners. Here are a couple of clips responding to this relief package. Here's T from Montpelier, Vermont, uh, talking about how the Senate plan gives financial relief to millions of Americans.
6: Yeah, I'm very disappointed in the government response, not the local government, the federal government's response to the uh, coronavirus outbreak. I think it's been too little too late. Um, the Uh, procedure, procedure for rolling out these checks is like glacial pace. And, you know, I'm just reading now three weeks for me or people to get, uh, this put into our accounts by direct deposit. I I don't understand why it's going to take that long. And I even have concern that it won't happen.
1: And here's Amy from Santa Cruz, California, talking about the response to the pandemic from the federal government and the lessons she hopes the country will learn.
3: I'm really proud of our county. We actually shut down a lot sooner than the rest of the country. Uh, Last I checked, we only had about 30 cases and no deaths, but still early days. So we're crossing our fingers. I'm also a climate activist, and a lot of us have been living with this sense of global dread for some time now and the COVID-19 just makes everything feel so immediate and we see how quickly we can shut things down if we need to to protect human life. So a lot of us are wondering why we can't do this in a gradual planned way but also somewhat rapid way around climate
1: Paula Reed, speak to T from Montpelier, Vermont, talking about the process and the timeline for rolling out these checks. He says, three weeks? Oh, that's not soon enough for me.
5: I mean, it sounds pretty soon in the context of the federal government, um, but I agree. I mean, this relief uh, may not be sufficient, a $1,200 uh, check, uh, one-time one payment right now, though the White House has said there may be more. This is not enough uh, to, to protect a lot of the people from the economic hardship they're about to face. Now, in terms of being frustrated with the federal response, I do have some good news that a lot of what you go through in, in, in this coronavirus outbreak is going to be dictated by your local officials. They are the ones who shut down. Uh, your local economy. They're the ones who will reopen it. I know even uh, from, you know, folks I- in my personal life, uh, inner circle, folks who couldn't get through to the federal government, but they call their local representatives and were able to get uh, their filing for-, for unemployment. So I know folks are frustrated uh, with the federal response, but the only, the only positive thing I can say is most of what you're going to need here is likely going to come elected representatives.
1: Jonathan Cohn, are we looking uh, down the road here? Are we looking at alternating periods of easing and tightening um, economics uh, with a pandemic rising whenever we when, whenever, you know, we have economic issues and, and sort of fall in when we tighten up? Right. Is that sort of the pattern we're going to see moving
4: forward? Well, you know, you would assume so. You would assume there'd be some of that. Obviously, the more people are going out and shopping, the, the more the economy is going to start to come back. But I, I think realistically, we have to recognize that the hit that we're taking right now, where there's not going to just be a quick uh, bounce back. I mean, just think in practical terms, if, you know, tomorrow or let's say it's a month from now and your, your your local you know, government says, OK, it's all clear we're in a part of the country where we really have this under control Okay, people are going to be antsy to get out there, but they're going to be a little wary, right? I mean, they're going to be nervous. Um, You know, you might see a flooded stores building up on supplies again, but people are going to be wary of going to restaurants. They're not going to want to go to sporting. And a lot of we're still probably not going to have those mass events right away. So, you know, there will be some fluctuation. But I also think realistically we're looking at a long climb Uh, back on the recovery. Now, the models, if you look at the economic models, they do suggest a kind of stronger recovery on the back end, but I don't know to what extent those models are capable of taking account of epidemiology. You know, those are economic models. Yeah,
1: yeah. Paula Reed, let me ask you quickly with just a couple minutes left here. A new Gallup poll shows President Trump is as popular as he has been since the first day in office. Overall, 49 percent of Americans approve of Mr. Trump as president. Sixty percent of Americans approve of the job he's doing in handling this coronavirus uh, crisis. Uh, what do you make of those numbers and what stands out to you about the president's leadership during the crisis?
5: Well, it's been interesting, his use of of the briefing room, the place that he he stumbled into, I think, once uh, prior to this crisis. He's in there almost every day on television. He likes to go late in the afternoon. It's sort of a prime time, lots of eyeballs. And if you're not paying really clean, it looks very presidential. It looks like a robust response problem is if you turn up the volume, what you hear is some misinformation, some defensiveness, some deflecting of blame. So it'll be interesting to see how those numbers hold. But, I mean, very few people have seen or heard from, from Joe Biden, unless they're watching his digital town halls, right, pain mode. He has been able to seize the spotlight. But one thing I just want to end on is I have to go back to exactly two months ago on January 22nd. I was with the president in Davos. I believe I was one of, if not the first, to ask him about the coronavirus This is what he said. He said, we think it's going to be handled very well. The CDC has been terrific. We are in good shape, and China is in good shape as well. That was exactly two months ago uh, at Davos. We know now um, it has not been handled very well. We know the CDC. I mean, even uh, CDC officials have admitted they were not fully prepared. Um, We at that time were in, I guess, good shape, but China was not. So two months later, we know many of the things the president said were not true and left us ill-prepared to handle this. So even though he's seeing this spike now, it will be interesting to see if that holds. And what that'll take is the president um, being honest, uh, showing leadership and ultimately giving accurate information to the American
1: people. Uh, Real quick, 15 seconds, Jonathan Cohn, I know this has hit really close to you. Your mom's in a nursing home. Your dad's a physician on the front line. How are you dealing with this personally?
4: You know, like everybody else, uh, just trying to get through it. And, uh, you know, I, I work for me is helpful because at least I feel like I can be contributing. So, you know, just hoping for the best and trying to uh, do the best work I can.
1: Well, thanks to both of you for spending time with us today. Jonathan Cohn from Huffington Post and Paula Reed, CBS White House correspondent. We really appreciate both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. We'll go out today with a little music from Coldplay. Frontman Chris Martin performing from his home in an Instagram Live concert take care everyone have a good weekend I'm Jane Clayson this is on point
3: so fly
0: Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes.
6: ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar, Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balanced scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements which everybody had thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight I think was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short-term, mid-term, long-term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big inside of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, it, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and... Thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment.
0: Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.